If you're able, you remain standing. And for the reading of God's Word, we're turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, starting at verse 22, and reading through verse 35. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, we're going to start reading at verse 22. This is the word of our Lord. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your written word. We pray that your spirit be present in the preaching of this word. We pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see glorious things concerning you. We pray that uh, I would not be a distraction to anyone hearing your word, and all eyes will be pointed to Christ for asking Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we saw last week, that music and singing has been part of Christmas celebration from the very first one. As you read in the book of Luke, we have uh, Elizabeth singing, we have Mary singing, we have the hosts of heaven singing, we have Simeon singing. Now Luke is the only one to record these new songs, the songs of the inception of the new covenant sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we saw Mary's song that uh, is known in history as the Magnificat. This week we're going to look at another song. We're going to look at Simeon's song. Now there are four things that we find in this passage, but it's dominated by the song that Simeon sings. As As we go there, we're going to see that in verses 22 through 24, the parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, dedicate him according to the law of God. Then we see that Simeon is introduced in verses 25 through 27. 
Then he sings in verses 28 to 32. And then he speaks to Mary and reveals certain things concerning Jesus' ministry in verses 33 through 35. We'll consider each part separately. Then we'll see how they work together and how the whole passage should affect the way we think, believe, and act. You notice that uh, we start reading in verse 22, where Luke records the dedication of Jesus in the temple. This is the only baby dedication you find in the Bible. And uh, if that's what church wants to do that today, baby dedication, make sure that everybody brings either a lamb or two doves to be sacrificed during that time of baby dedication. If, you're, if you say that's what you need to do. But this is, this is where Jesus is brought to the temple to be dedicated as the firstborn of the family. It is 33 days after his birth. And you read and the pastor said, but doesn't say anything about 33 days. Well, the law that they're following requires that 33 days after the birth of a male that the couple offer an offering in the temple in dedication of that male. Uh, so if Jesus was born on December 25th, 25th what we read here today would be January 27th. Now we say, wait a minute, we skipped the birth. Well, we saved it for next week. So if you're there with me, we're going to jump 33 days and then come back 33 days after that. They came to the temple to dedicate Jesus, and they did that in obedience to two different laws that are specified in the Old Testament. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 13, which is the law of dedicating the firstborn. In Exodus 13, verses 1 and 2, says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both a man both a man and beast, it is mine. And then jumping down to verse 11, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. So there's this dedication that was required that every family in Israel would bring their firstborn to be dedicated to the Lord. It didn't mean that they had to serve in the ministry, but there was this acknowledgement that the firstborn, the first fruit, was the Lord's in recognition that everyone was the Lord's. Now there was a second law that they were also following as they came to the temple, and that's found in Leviticus chapter 12, and that's the law of purification of a woman after she gives birth. In Leviticus 12 verse 8 it says, If she is not able to bring a lamb for her purification, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering, so the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. So it's in obedience to these two laws that Joseph and Mary brought baby Jesus to the temple to have her purified and him dedicated as the firstborn to the Lord. And we learn at least two things about Jesus in this passage, in these first few verses. First, Jesus was the firstborn son, which means that he was the oldest of the other siblings. Are you with me on this one? It's very obvious, but it's good to say. Jesus was the firstborn, which means it was the oldest of the other siblings. In, se in several other passages in the Bible, we have Jesus presented as having brothers 
and sisters. And if you count names, he had at least three brothers and at least two sisters. And uh, we have three names of brothers. And then he says, and he had sisters. And for him to have sisters, he has to have more than one. So at least three brothers and at least two sisters, all younger than him. Um, and why am I saying that? Well, there's a teaching that says that these other siblings were either not siblings, because every once in a while the word for brother is used for a cousin or a relative. Not very common, but sometimes used. Or that these siblings are only Joseph's siblings that came into the marriage with Joseph. One of these two ideas are presented out there. The problem is that the Bible does say that they were siblings. And our passage, a passage here does tell us that Jesus was the firstborn of the couple. Not just of Mary, but of Joseph as well. In the law of God, the firstborn was considered from the perspective of both mother and father. Think of Jacob. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament where he had two wives in Rachel and Leah, but he also had two concubines. And the order of birth was the order as it related to Jacob, not as it related to the mother. With Reuben being the oldest and losing the right of the firstborn because of sin in his life, and Judah then receiving that right at that point. Now, why do people push this? Why do people want these kids not to be related to Jesus, not to be his younger siblings? Well, it comes from the desire to teach that Mary was perpetually a virgin, that she never consummated her marriage with Joseph. This is a current Roman Catholic dogma. The Roman Catholic Church believes that. And it comes from a misguided notion that celibacy is always better than any sexual union, even between married people. And the Bible clearly teaches that that is a mistake, that there's no, there's no um, more holy status for a celibate married person. As a matter of fact, we would teach that it would be sinful to live a celibate life between a husband and a wife willingly, voluntarily there. So first thing we learn about Jesus, he was the oldest. And he had little kids, little brothers and sisters. And as the oldest, what happens yeah, I, I often said that I I've often felt sorry as I look back, feel sorry for our oldest because it's the guinea pig. It's the one that uh, we try everything with. It's the one that uh, we make a lot of the mistakes with. It's the one blamed for a lot of the other kids do. And that's, that's what Jesus was. I was talking to an oldest child of a man who may not be mentioned, named among us here today, and he said, oh yeah, I got spankings for all the other kids as I was uh, uh, growing up. And I wonder, that's what Jesus, happened to Jesus too. As the oldest, he often had to perhaps suffer for what other people did, which was already a preparation for his ultimate ministry, where he was going to suffer for what you and I did or do. The second thing we learn about Jesus is that God sent him to be raised in a poor and godly family. They brought two turtle doves or two pigeons to offer to the Lord for Mary's purification. And that was the option for those who were too poor to offer a lamb. If you really didn't have any money, you brought two pigeons to offer for 
your purification after having a baby. And yet, in their poverty, they were zealous to obey God's law. So we know that Jesus was sent to a poor family, but a godly family. And I think that teaches us a little bit of God's priority. That godliness is more important than the riches of this world. That's how he wanted his own son to be raised. In a family that valued the word of God more than necessarily the riches of this world. From these two things that we learn from, about Jesus in these two first few verses, there are two theological applications that we need to consider. And there is a lot of excitement around Christmas season, isn't there? Is that fair to say? Every, every family with kids, super, super excited, lots of excitement, lots of candies, lots of hype, uh, hyperness, lots of things going on there. There's good spirit. No, man. Good Hallmark movies coming out this time of the year. Just got a lot of good things happening during this time of the year. There are celebrations, church programs, present exchange, all that because we are celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is indeed a great reason to be happy. Even in the Bible, there was a lot of singing around the birth of Jesus. But even in the midst of these songs, we see another aspect of the first coming of our Lord that sometimes we miss, and that is his state of humiliation. When Paul is referring back to what we read here in the Gospel of Luke and and theologically interpreting what, what happened when Jesus was born, when Jesus was incarnated in the conception and born, he says this, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I won't spend a lot of time on this because I think Elder Hoy may be addressing this next Lord's Day afternoon, so I'll leave it there. But what I want to say here is that becoming like you and I, it was a big disappointment for God. It wasn't like, man, this is great. He was, he was humiliated by becoming like one of us. Our, our larger catechism says that the state of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he for our sakes emptied himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after the, his death until his resurrection. The, the cross was the ultimate act of humiliation for God the Son, but life limited by the created order in a sin-cursed world from birth was part of what the, the Son had to suffer for the sake of His people. So even in all this celebration that we find in the book of Luke, at the core of it is the beginning of the suffering of Messiah, the life of humiliation of the Messiah for those who believe in Him. The other theological application is that Jesus, even from his infancy, obeyed God's law. There there was not a moment in his life in which he was not in complete submission to all the requirements of God's law, both in heart and in behavior. And not as a goody-two-shoe. You know that guy or that girl, that person who is always saying, 
putting the front of obeying the Bible and also making sure that everybody else is obeying the Bible and make sure that everybody else knows that they're obeying Bible, that he is obeying the Bible and make sure that everybody else knows that they are not obeying the Bible. That's not Jesus. Jesus obeyed from heart and behavior from the very beginning as a pleasant person to be around uh, as they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very important because that is what God requires of those who are to be in fellowship with him. Perfect obedience to his law. Sinless perfection. And you are not that. Every one of us here, you and me, we are not that. If in your mind you have any notion of thinking that somehow you have some good to offer God, repent. That is a, that's from the devil. That is a satanic thought. It's not there. That's not who you are. But at the moment, at the moment we believe that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension were all done for on our behalf, God counts Jesus' perfect obedience as our perfect obedience. We are used to the idea that at the moment we believe God forgives all our sins, past, present, and future because of Jesus' death on the cross. And that's a glorious truth. But it's also truth at the same point that we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us to be positively righteous because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer in Jesus Christ, when God looks at your face, He sees the face of His Son. When God looks at your heart, He sees the obedient heart of His Son. When when God looks at your actions, He sees the obedience actions of His Son, perfectly executed on your behalf if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And we can see that here, that even from His birth, He obeyed God's law perfectly so that you and I could have our standing before God, a standing of perfection. At our worst days, if you are believing in Jesus Christ, at your worst day, the day that nothing's going wrong, the day that you've had all kinds of disappointment, the day that you were all kinds of disappointment, God looks at you and says, I love you with infinite love because I love you through my son, Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed me. And we see that even in this birth narrative or this uh, um, story early on in Jesus' life. And as they come to the temple to offer these uh, turtle doves and to present Jesus for dedication, this man Simeon shows up in verses 25 through 27. Now, this is the only place in the Bible that we meet Simeon. And yet, his faith and obedience to the Lord gained him a place in the biblical history for all generations to know about him till our Lord returns. And what was it that gained him this place in history? Look at verse 25. It says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Here's his claim to fame. And this man was just and devout. There can be no greater honor than for the Holy Spirit to call you a just and devout person. There's not chapters written about Simeon. There are not books written about Simeon. And yet these words are recorded for all eternity. He was just and devout. And there's a lesson we learn from Simeon. What are we known for 
And what do you want to be known for? In other words, what is your claim to fame? What is, what, what is it important to you? How do you want people to know you? How do you want history to know you? Well, the truth is that most of us, 50 to 75 years from now, nobody's going to remember us. Sorry to break it to you. But if they were going to, how would you want to be remembered? Simeon is remembered as devout. He's remembered as godly, as righteous, as just. And that's how we are called to be remembered, to live. And Simeon's hope was not in his godliness, but in the consolation of Israel. Again, if you look at verse 25, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this was a just and devout, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He wasn't saying, he was in that temple saying, Lord, how great I am, how devout I am, how God knows. He was there because his hope was in the consolation of Israel. His hope was in the Messiah, whose ministry was to reconcile man to God and God to man. The consolation of Israel is the Lord's Christ. Jesus Christ is that consolation. Is the one that brings man and God together and God and man together. To be the consolation is to be the encouragement, the comfort. It's, it's, it's to call another to come alongside you. It's to bring people together. So Simeon's hope was in the one who is going to bring man and God together. And that's the only hope you and I have as well. And notice that all that's going on here was orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 26 and 27. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him upon his arms and blessed God and said, The Spirit brought Simeon to the temple is right when Joseph and Mary were bringing Jesus to the temple. As it was with Elizabeth that we saw last week, the Holy Spirit opened Simeon's eyes, opened Simeon's heart to see Jesus as the constellation of Israel, to see Jesus as the hoped-for Messiah. And this is the universal reality that unless the Holy Spirit opens the person's eyes to see who Jesus is and to see his or her need of him, he or she will never recognize who she is, who, who Jesus is. So I pray that today the Spirit will be opening all of our eyes to see the glory of the consolation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon's recognition that the baby before him was the Messiah led him to sing. And we find his song in verses 28 through 32. And this song is known as the Nunc Dimittis, or now dismissed from the first two words of the Latin Vulgate, of the Latin text, um, uh, from this passage. Now, I wonder if uh, Joseph and Mary were surprised by Simeon taking the baby from them. If you look at uh, uh, verse 28, it says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, um, I wonder if this, you know, it seems like there's an older man we don't know about, about it, but you go in the temple, a stranger comes to you, takes your baby off of your arms and starts singing no, almost like a Lion King thing uh, there in the middle of the temple. I'm in the, what will be your reaction? Now, those of you who pack 
might be, you know, pulling your gun out to say, who's this weirdo who's taking my baby? I remember in the last few times my dad came to the United States, we had to kind of police him because he'd be at the mall and babies would walk and he would reach out for the babies and say, Dad, we don't want to be arrested. Don't touch other people's kids, even though you just love them and you want to say hi uh, to them. I wonder what was the situation that we see here. But what we see then is what, what Simeon witnessed was a fulfillment of God's promise. In verses 29 and 30, he says, This is happening according to your word, according to your promise. He had longed for the Messiah. Now he, was, he has met him. Simeon was a true Jew in the sense that he accepted the Messiah when he came. When the Messiah was before him, he acknowledged him by faith. And meeting Jesus brought peace to Simeon. If you look at his song, in verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, this is not an absence of conflict, but a completeness of soul. Now that Simeon has met his Messiah, his soul, his person is complete before the Lord. Much like the psalmist expressed that in Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2, it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And Simeon just met that rock. And that peace came upon him. Simeon literally saw with his eyeballs in Jesus the salvation of his soul. And to see Jesus is to see God's salvation. And conversely, there is no salvation apart from seeing Jesus. And as we look at this, none of this was a last minute thing. This is something that God prepared ahead of time. Look at verses 31 and 32. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people. Biblical history had been moving to this moment all along. From that moment that Adam and Eve fell in the garden, history in, in the Bible, in the world, the universe is moving to this moment in which Christ came to deliver his people. And it was not, it was not a moving in secret. He says it's happening before the face of all people in verse 31. And notice that the plan of salvation is for both Jews and Gentiles. I wish that whoever first translated this word as Gentiles would not have done that. Because it's just a word for nations. And Simeon says that this Messiah, this consolation that I've seen, this comforter, the one who's going to reunite men and God, reconcile men and God, is the light and the glory of Israel, but of all nations. He's the light and the glory of the world. Now, there's a system of theology that teaches that Jesus came to the, just for ethnic Israel. And then they, re, they rejected him. So then God said, oh, oops, I have to figure out plan B. And plan B gave birth to the church. According to Simeon, who is singing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, every word he's saying is inspired and infallible. The plan all along was for Jesus to be the Messiah of the Jews and the Messiah of the nations. Jesus is the light and the glory of the world. And that is why there is no other name under heaven whereby a person must be saved. Jew or Gentile, whatever ethnicity, Jesus is your Messiah 
come to faith in him. And when he's done singing, he turns to Mary because he has still more stuff to say. And he reveals some things to Mary about Jesus' ministry. Look at verses 33 through 35. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now what he says doesn't sound quite a blessing, but it is a blessing. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of men's many hearts may be revealed. Though Joseph and Mary knew that Jesus was the Son of God, they, there are things that they didn't know. They, were, they knew that he came to fulfill God's promise, but they still didn't know everything about their son. They were amazed at the, what Simeon had said in his song, but he wasn't done yet, and he had more to tell them. And he tells them that the light and glory of the world will have a difficult life in verses 34 and 35. This baby that they are holding will suffer greatly in the hands of the very people he came to minister unto. He says that he will be a sign which will be spoken against And the hearts of those who had an appearance of religiosity will be revealed as dark and selfish. It says he's going to be for the fall of many. And the hearts will be revealed. And this is primarily a reference to the religious leaders of the time who had a form of godliness on the outside, but were like sepulchers full of dead man's bones in the inside but it's also applied to all who have a pretense of faith. If you're just pretending to be a Christian, Christ knows. If somehow you're just kind of this outside mode, Christ knows. Stop pretending. Come to real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, he, and Simeon continues, says, in all of that, Mary will suffer. As a mother does when she sees her son being rejected by many and ultimately being killed in verse 35. Now, this doesn't mean that Christ's suffering was Mary's suffering, making her some sort of co-mediatrix with Christ. There is a current dogma in the Roman Catholic Church that says that Mary was so united with Christ that when Christ died on the cross, Mary died on the cross with him, and she has the power to save you. That's a doctrine from hell. There's one name under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ and his name alone. Simeon prophesies that Jesus was going to be a stumbling block for many, while at the same time becoming the chief cornerstone. And lastly, Simeon prophesies that Jesus, through his spirit, wielding his word, shines a light in the hearts of people. In 35, he says, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As the light shines, what is in the heart of man is revealed. And it's not revealed to us or to, to Christ because he already knows what's in the heart of man. But as the word of God comes to us, our own hearts are revealed to us. We know ourselves best when we know ourselves in the light of the gospel. And that's revealed to us. So how do we live? How do we believe based on what we saw here this morning? First, we receive Jesus as the consolation of Israel by faith. We don't resist it. We receive him. Secondly, we receive Jesus as the light and the glory of the world, as the only Savior of mankind. 
Thirdly, we open our hearts to the Word of God and to the work of the Spirit so that we may know what is in our heart. And lastly, we stand upon Jesus, even at the cost of rejection, and are built up in our faith as that rock that came to give us stability forever in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the revelation that we find of him in your word. Father, we pray that we would have true faith in him. The faith of many are weak. We struggle. We have doubts. We want to quit at times. The pressures of this world strangle the presence of the gospel in our hearts. Sometimes our foundation is shallow. Father, we pray that you'd give us a grace to overcome all that. Help us to grow in Christ and to hold him as the dearest thing to us. We thank you that you reconciled us to yourself through him. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.